Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So for today, I want you to just sit down in a comfortable chair. Check. Lean back, relax, close your eyes, and just, just come along with me on a journey. Um, a story. This is, this is, we, you know, this is a David Smith story hour or half hour. And, uh, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to talk about an experience, a journey I've just, uh, sort of recently concluded going on, building a feature out, uh, in Watchsmith. And I feel like a couple, you know, several months ago, I did a, we did a similar kind of episode where I feel like sometimes it's fun to just talk through the process that, um, I go through, or I think even Marco has done a couple of these too, where it's this funny thing of like, how did we actually build this feature and some of the weird things we have to deal with um, along the way. And I just went through one of these things where I thought, oh, this would be a pretty straightforward feature and turned out, no, 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 it was, it was, it was the opposite of that. Um, so the feature that I was, I've been working on is I wanted to add uh, photo complications to WatchSmith. So if you imagine, so in Widgetsmith, the most popular widget by far is the photo widget. That is what people love to use, and I can understand why. And it seems like an, an obvious sort of inclusion for me to add to WatchSmith as part of this big update I'm working on for, for WatchSmith. And so I want to be able to, to allow the user to, on their phone, pick a picture, adjust what it looks like, uh, getting it just right, and then you know, hit, essentially hit save and have that appear as a complication on their watch. It seems relatively straightforward. It's just a picture. It's going to be shown at a very small resolution. Um, but it turned out the process of getting from that, to, you know, from, from that idea to actually having it work, which I finally got it to work yesterday um, after many, many days of banging my head against the wall and lots of pain and suffering. Um, and so that's the journey I'm going to take you on now. And that's the end goal that we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to a place where I can pick a picture on a phone and have it show up on a watch. This is one of those things that, like, you know, programmers so often use the wonderful phrase, how hard could it be? <laughs> how hard can it be? And we this, are about to find out. Like, as as you're describing the feature, I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like it would be that bad, especially since you've already done it for Widgetsmith. Yeah. So, first things you need to know about um, watch programming is that everything on the watch is just a little bit harder. It's just a little bit more... Um, so sort of challenging. And so the first thing you have to deal with, and this is one of those things where it is completely trivial on the, uh, in Widgetsmith and is very difficult on the watch, is how do you get that picture from the, from the phone to the watch? Um, and so on, the, on the phone, it's just, I just add it to the sort of the application container and it's in a shared space and it's, you know, both the widget and the, and the, the main app can read it. But for the, the watch, I'm going to have to somehow get it over there. Um, and so I've, the, the obvious answer is to use watch connectivity. And mm. um, though I will say... <laughs> yeah. What? What could possibly go wrong with f- sending files over watch connectivity? <laughs> what, what, exactly. What could possibly go wrong? Like, and these, are, these aren't big, big files. Like, it's probably fair to say, too. It's like the, the ultimate result for... So like if you, a graphic circular complication is 94 pixels by 94 pixels. And like the extra large circular one, which is the biggest image that I can send, is 264 pixels by 264 pixels. You know, these are things that would, you know, you, an old like original Macintosh image, you know, could probably could, could probably display. <laughs> like these are not big things, but you think, okay, honestly, I will say I did have the thought of like, I wonder if I should upload these to a server and then have the watch download them directly just so I could avoid watch connectivity. Um, that's how much I have had <laughs> problems with watch connectivity over the days. Though, though in the end, I decided, no, that's silly. Like, then there's all kinds of problems with doing it that way. 
Is it still? I mean, that's literally like I just built my entire watch app from scratch to have its own direct to the network sync engine, mostly to avoid the problems I've had for years with watch connectivity. So that way the watch has to talk to the phone as little as possible. Yes. And I, I did I did think about it and I did kind of it's like the, the, the problem that I that I didn't I wanted to avoid is that it, then it requires an Internet connection to set up your complications which maybe is a fine assumption to make that, but it's, it seemed like it was a slightly awkward thing that if you were out, you know, it's like the imagine you sort of, you have the scenario where you have to, you know, you, you have to be on good networking and especially it gets weird because if, if, even if, even if you're out and you have a cellular connection on your phone, the watch proxying that cellular connection through itself is often just as problematic as watch connectivity. So Anyway, I decided watch connectivity it is. So I'm going to use watch connectivity to get these teeny, teeny tiny files across, I thought. Um, so the first thing you think, oh, these are files. So maybe I should use the transfer file API in watch connectivity. Nope, it doesn't work. For whatever reason, I find that the transfer file thing, it's one of those, when it works, it works flawlessly. But most of the time, it doesn't work. And you hit transfer file, and it's just like transferring. And you have no idea when it's going to happen. Um, so you think, oh, maybe I should use the like message data protocol, which is a different version of watch connectivity. It's designed for more interactivity, but turns out because I'm initiating these transfers from the phone, um, they, if you, you can't actually use that, that, that side of the protocol unless the watch app is active. Um, so it just, otherwise it just fails. So I can't use that. So I'm down to user info, which is the, the third kind of way to do watch connectivity. Um, and that seems to work okay. Um, it's, you know, for, for what I'm doing, but there, I, I sort of initially I started running into all kinds of, uh, payload to large errors with user info. Um, and so it's like, okay, so apparently I'm, you know, sending images over this API. It's not necessarily intended for this. It's probably, it's a, you're supposed to be sending like data dictionaries back and forth. So there's a limit somewhere. It's like, what is the limit? Who knows? So you, know, you start Googling around and I find a stack overflow comment that's like, according to some private symbols, um, the WC payload size limit user info symbol says that it's 65,000 bytes. Um, and so that's what they said. And it's like, okay, I need to somehow make sure that all of my images that I send over this need to only be 65,000 bytes, which should be fine in some ways. And so uh, the first thing I do is at this point is I make a test project and I progressively make the, make, um, the payload larger and larger until I sort of cross over this, uh, the, you know, the threshold where I get this, get this error back. And it turned out, Whoever this person was on this random Stack Overflow form, they were exactly right. It's about 65,000 bytes. Um, so yay for Stack Overflow. And now I have a, a goal that I need to work against. And so now what I need to do is this weird problem where I take the image and I progressively um, use JPEG compression to make it more and more compressed <laughs> until it fits in the space that I have available to me. So I start off with it being like good and high quality. And if for some reason... I've actually done the same logic on my servers for years for thumbnailing. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have the exact same problem because if you send an image that's too large to iOS devices, they might crash while decoding it or trying to hold it in memory. And so I try to put as much data on the server side as possible. And my thumbnailer actually has like, you know, it, it has different sizes and it has, it has different... Um, bite size thresholds for each size and it will attempt to maintain 100% quality like first with ping and then if it can't it'll go to high quality JPEGs and then do the same thing slowly lower the quality level until it is below that threshold however I have right right away because I have done that process I know of a gotcha 
that might be getting you, which might be a future part of the story that I don't necessarily want to ruin, but were you removing things like color profiles from the images first? Because those alone can balloon it past that threshold. And you can keep the image compressing further and further down to quality zero, and it'll still be like, you know, 85K. And you're like, why is it this big? What's What could possibly be taken by the space? And it's like, it's basically crap in the EXIF data, like large blobs in the EXIF data. So I haven't run into that yet, though I'm writing that down as something that inevitably <laughs> will come up and bite me at some point and I'll need to deal with. Um, so I think though, because of the way that of some, some of something else that I'm doing, uh, I think I will be fine because ultimately the images that I'm, I'm, I don't take the raw image and try and compress that down. I have to resize it first. And I think because I'm resizing it, there's no profile because the version that I'm making is just like a very simple, basic, like UI image renderer, uh, image. It doesn't see, I don't think it has any of that overhead to it, but I will. I will investigate. As long as it can't carry forward any of the EXIF data from the original, then you should be okay. Yeah, because I think it's fine because I'm like rendering, a, you know, I'm doing like UI image like render in context. And so like it's it should, it, ultimately I'm just moving the pixels back and forth. So I think I should be fine, but I will, that is that is a good thing to investigate. Um, but anyway, so I have this method now that I can get these images essentially, you know, progressively compressed down until they are small enough that watch connectivity, con- connectivity will move them. So now I have the ability to like add to this test project, uh, watch companion app, and I can send these over the watch connectivity. And then whenever it receives one, it just throws it into a complication. Um, and it actually worked. Um, so this was the, the point of this project where I was like, okay, this, this is viable. Like this is something that theoretically should be possible now that I've gone through the sort of the proof of concept phase. Cause for a while I was like, I don't even know if this is possible, that there may be some weird limitation. Um, and before I went too far down the road with this, I didn't want to, you know, invest all the time. And turns out I can't even move the images between my, my phone and my watch. It just wasn't, that wasn't possible, but now I know it is possible. It's just tricky. So now comes the question of, um, I need to get the images and I need to allow you to be able to orient and adjust the images so that they make sense in a tiny little complication. Because you're talking about, you know, you may have a big, you take a nice image with your iPhone and you have this beautiful, what is it, 12 megapixel um, image and you're compressing it down into something that's like 48 pixels or for, 98, 96 pixels by 96 pixels. So you, I don't want to just like smush it down because that would be pointless. Like you'd have, you, you wouldn't be able to see anything. It wouldn't make sense. So I need you to be able to sort of zoom and pan um, inside of an image. And this is one of those things where at first, um, it's like, okay, I, how, how do I do this in a way that makes sense? And this is where using Swift UI for this application definitely came back to bite me a little bit because I feel like in UI kit, this would have been a bit much, much easier thing. Um, because the, just the gesture recognizers inside of, uh, UI kit are so good. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing, but, I start going down the road of doing this by using the Swift UI gestures and I, I get it vaguely to work. Like in terms of I let you, you know, you pick a picture, which is, which as a side note is using the UI image picker controller, um, a sort of API just wrapped in a Swift UI uh, view because, um, yeah, that, that's the only way that, that I have found to be able to sort of to do this in a reasonable way. And I love using UI image picker because then I don't have the sort of photo kit author, photo author, author authorization issues and having to like ask people for permission to see all of their pictures, which I don't want to get into. So I just want to use an image picker and it works. Um, but I get the image and it's giant. And so I need to zoom in and pan around and I get it working in Swift UI. Um, 
And, but it's, it's just one of those funny things that this is just an interesting note that I've, I've, I've been discovering in my sort of in my work with Swift UI and from UIKit is that there's a lot of these things in Swift in UIKit that they're just like, I imagine ultimately it's things like these, there are these little coefficients that are built into things like UI scroll view and the way the UI pinch gesture recognizer works and things where I just could never get with a magnification gesture and the pan gesture inside of Swift UI things to kind of behave like you would expect them to. And it was hard to explain because it was working correctly, you know, in the sense of it was, you know, when I move my fingers out, it changes size, but it didn't change at the right speed or like handle it that like the, the ramp up and the ramp down, like all these things just felt off. Um, and so in the end, what I do is I just ended up having to get rid of all of the native Swift UI stuff. And I just ended up wrapping some UI gesture recognizers inside of a Swift UI view and end up using that um, as a way to use it inside of Swift UI. And that worked. Um, except for all kinds of weird, just sort of like getting the state management of that working correctly just drove me insane. Um, there was probably a good four hour period where everything seemed like it was working, but nothing would update correctly. And it turned out it was one of these weird things that have happened to me many times in SwiftUI where the wrong part of my view hierarchy's sort of state data was getting updated. And so some of the parts were getting these like, you know, the, the change events. So when I'm saying like, you know, move the image to the left, move the image to the right, um, it was that some parts of it were getting it and some parts weren't. And so it was just breaking in weird ways. And so a little like pro tip that I came up with with this was just how I ultimately saved my sanity was I added an extension to color that you would you could just ask it for a random color. So I just say a color.random and it just gives me a random color every time. And I would wrap a bunch of my components at different levels of the view hierarchy with dot border, color dot random. So essentially, the, all the all the uh, the elements have these random colors, and if everything's changing correctly, as I you know swipe my finger across, everything should go crazy, and there should be these this ra- rainbow colors everywhere. As every time it updates, it gets a new color, and I would let me identify which part of the view hierarchy wasn't getting updated because its border would stay the same and wouldn't have the like rainbow party. So. <laughs> Pro tip: If you ever need to debug weird, uh, uh, you know, Swift view, uh, you know, object sort of <laughs> refresh stuff, that's a great way to do it. And if I wish I had thought of it earlier in the process rather than um, sort of just banging my head against the wall for a long time. Um, but in the end, I was able to get it to work. I was able to get the pan and zoom system to work reasonably well, um, and it would you know, just ended up having to fall back to UIKit, which I feel kind of sad about. There's part of me that wishes I didn't have to go back to UIKit, but I did. And so it's fine. Um, And in general, it was worked reasonably well. There are a few areas that it was a bit funny because like the number of different coordinate systems that I'm having to deal with in this app right now um, is too many. (laughs) Is the short reality because like I'm dealing with the UI views um, sort of coordinates and coordinate space, and then I need to translate that into the images coordinate space, which is slightly different than the, than the use the Swift UI image space because you know. And then I need to ultimately, and this is where like the one that really really hurt my head, and this is where it made me laugh a little bit because ultimately, you know, I have this image, I have it in a Swift UI view, and I can scale it up and down, and I can move it around, so I can orient it onto a different part of the image. Um, and then I need to ultimately render that into a smaller, like essentially the cropped version of that image is what I'm ultimately needing to, to render. 
but trying to get the coordinate system transform and the things like, you know, I need to essentially take the image and I need to actually be trying to render it at an origin that is outside of the frame that you can see, you know, so if you imagine you zoom in on a picture, the actual origin of that picture that I'm rendering is way off to the, like the top left conceptually. Hmm. And that way you can see just the little part in the middle in the window that you actually can see. And like trying to get that logic right, uh, it made me laugh because it was essentially like machine learning programming is what I felt like I was doing, where I had no idea the right combination of like negatives and, and positives and adding offsets and subtracting offsets and all the things that I needed to do and when I need to multiply by the difference in aspect ratio between the two things and all this. I had no idea what I was doing at some point. And so I just kept trying, like I just tried every possible possible version and then just like once i got it whichever version seemed slightly better i would sort of like dial down into that and it's like this genetic algorithm i'm running where i just keep trying every possible solution of plus and minus and add and subtract and divide and multiply until it worked and then eventually it worked and it sort of is not a very viable way to do programming but in this particular case it actually sort of worked um and that was just one of those funny like okay i like once it worked i'm like oh, great it worked I, I don't actually know like the, all the math that I did to get there. I don't really understand why that's the particular math that I need to do, but I can do it. I can take the giant image. You've moved it around with your pan and zoom gesture, and I can render it now into a image. Hooray. It worked. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> well, we'll hear the shocking conclusion next. But first, we are brought to you this week by Pingdom. Do you have a website? Does your website have things like a shopping cart or registration forms or contact pages? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you need Pingdom. Nobody wants their critical website transactions to fail because that means bad experiences for your users and could mean lost business for you. Pingdom can monitor these transactions in addition to monitoring your website uptime in general. So transaction monitoring will alert you when things like cart checkout or form submissions or login pages fail before they affect too many of your customers and therefore your business. Pingdom will let you know the moment any of these fail in whatever way is best for you. You can customize how you're alerted, who's alerted, depending on the outages, conditions, and severity. And Pingdom cares about your users having the smoothest site experience possible. If disaster strikes, you will be the first person to know so you can go fix it. It is super easy to get started on Pingdom. I personally have used Pingdom for a long time, and I'm using it, like, literally right now, this morning. I keep checking Pingdom because I'm having a network connectivity issue with some of my servers, and I can look at Pingdom, and I can see latencies of all the checks from all around the world that they're checking it from. So I can see, like, hey, this server's okay when it's checked from North America, but right now when it's being checked from Europe, it's seeing, you know, unusual latency, and I can, I can actually go be notified of stuff like that and go fix it. It is great. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Pingdom.com slash RelayFM. When you sign up, use code RADAR at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Once again, Pingdom.com slash RelayFM, code RADAR for 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. Okay, so now where we left our hero, he had just finally gotten the basics of the system to work. And so what does he do? Does he celebrate? Does he say, good job, Dave, and move on? No, he decides, let's make this problem 10 times harder. So what I had the thought of, it's like most people, I think, who are going to use this feature are going to take a picture probably of someone they care about, and they want to show that person on their watch face. So what do I think to do? Oh, I'm going to use the vision framework to identify faces in those images 
and have the ability for you to zoom in automatically to the person. If I detect people in a picture, I want you to be able to you know, automatically zoom into those people's faces and have that be the, the, the sort of the center point uh, of the of the the complication. Seems like that should be reasonable, right? Like there's a whole framework for this. Like isn't this every year Apple talks about how amazing their their machine learning and stuff is, and I've never had a reason to use it. And I was like, I finally have a reason to use machine learning kind of stuff in my application. So let's try it. First thing I discover, which made, like broke my heart, was that it, the vision frameworks don't work in the simulator, which doesn't make any sense to me because I have an M1 Mac. So like I, I don't understand why they don't work, but apparently they just don't. <laughs> And so, like it's it, it's like it's 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 an it's it's an, it's Apple Silicon. I don't know why these don't work, but they don't. So that just is always just a bit discouraging because a lot of this stuff, like when I'm doing this iteration, when I'm working kind of rapidly and trying to just work through stuff, and as we'll get into, there's a whole other round of my machine learning based programming where I'm just like flailing wildly trying to get something to work. Um, it's so much nicer when it's in the simulator and not on the device, but that's not the case. So I, I get on the device and the nice thing, the vision framework is actually, it, it's relatively, from what I'm trying to do with it, it's relatively straightforward. You give it an image, it has this really weird call structure where you like create a request and then the request has to be passed to um, like a, a request processor and there's all kinds of weird error states. But like once I worked through that, I could get it so I could reliably say, here's a UI image, give me the rectangles where... Um, there's a face if you see one or, you know, nothing if there was no face, if it's a picture of a, you know, a non-face. Anyway, Um, but the strange thing there is, of course, like I have to add in one more different coordinate system. So the vision framework (laughs) does something that I've never seen anywhere else and that completely broke my brain for many hours is it gives all of the sort of the rectangles in a normalized version. So essentially where the like, all of the values go from zero to one and it's proportional inside of the width and the height of the image. (laughs) I don't know why, but that's what it does. And so everything you do has to be like denormalized back into image space before you can deal with it. Oh, that's great. And like, I I, I don't, I I don't, and in a weird way with like the Y axis seemed like it was flipped in a weird way. And so even just trying to know <laughs> if I was using it, which always drives me crazy when I'm working with something like this, that I, I wanted to see if I'm using it correctly. And so I give it, I give it an image and I get back like a rectangle and the rectangle is, it's like, Oh, it's from, you know, 0.268 comma 0.563. And then it's, you know, 0.1, 0.1 or something. And it's like, what do I do with this? How do I know if that number is correct? If I'm using the framework correctly, if the zigs are good. And it took me forever to be able to like reconvert that back into something that I could then pass to SwiftUI to then overlay an image and then move that image inside of its geometry reader so that it was in the right place. <laughs> and eventually I got there. Eventually I like didn't lose my mind, but there were a few touch and go moments there where it's like trying to get to that point turned out to just be so tricky. And it's, I, I get why in some ways that they, they, they're doing it that way. But at a certain level, I'm like, why are you doing this? Why are you inventing this totally new, like, I've never seen any other UI framework in all of iOS. And I've been doing this for a long time where it's all like normalized, like it's, it's, a, it's a CG rect, but it isn't actually a CG rect because it doesn't represent X and Y coordinates. Essentially, it represents like percentages of the image. Um, but anyway, so I, I finally got down there and it was one of those things like, you know, it's a good feature when the first time you do it, it just works perfectly. And it just it does exactly kind of what you want, where I show up, you know, I hit, I load up a picture of like me and my family and 
immediately it just zooms right in on our faces and I have a little preview window where that shows how it would look on the watch. And it's just like, yep, that's perfect. Like it, it's really cool when it happens where like it, the idea is relatively straightforward, but I didn't need to do it. But once I've done it, it's like any other version of this is completely you know, insufficient because trying to get it exactly zoomed in and tanned around and looked, looked just right. If I can do it automatically, then like that's so much better and it makes the feature so much better. Um, and it's like, other than having to make it so that I zoom out slightly, because the funny thing about the vision framework is it's face detection, not head detection. Um, and so it gives me the rectangle that is essentially eyebrow to like, just below your lips, like mid, it's like mid chin to eyebrows. And so the first version zoomed to there. And so everyone looks a little bit crazy. Um, but I could zoom out a little bit and I just add a buffer to it and, and finally it works. And now that's then like I had to convert that into uh, zoom and pan calls. Um, as though it had happened to the pan and zoom thing so that the UI pinch recognizer, which is deeply wrapped way down inside of a Swift UI view, can have the correct starting point when it starts to move again. Um, but it all worked. And that's was the sort of the the end of this fun. And it was interesting because like, and at this point, I'm still working entirely inside of a uh, test project because I will say it's, I highly recommend using test projects for this kind of thing where I didn't worry about all of the sort of the overhead that you have to do if you actually incorporate this into uh, your main app because the number of times I just had to keep, you know, build and run, build and run. And because it was only building essentially two, like one file. Um, the build process was super fast. The run process was super fast. It was easy to change the entry point into the application so that it was always exactly what I was trying to test at a particular time. And now I'm just going through the process of actually like backporting essentially this test project into the main Watchsmith app. Um, and that so so far has been going reasonably well. That like I've I've you know I've worked out most of the problems, and it now comes the only things that are going to be like slightly annoying, or is always the thing when you're prototyping something. You make a lot of assumptions. You make a lot of guesses and things you don't necessarily have to worry about. Where like in this version, I need to make sure that I'm not creating files, sending them over to the watch, and then never deleting them if they get replaced, for example. So like I have to do that kind of bookkeeping and cache management uh, to make sure that I'm not just slowly you know, gobbling up all of the user space over time and things like that, which I didn't have to worry about in the test project. But overall, that's where we are. A few more gray hairs as a result of this feature, but I finally got there. <laughs> wow yeah watch watch connectivity and and trying to build apps on the watch is such that i'm kind of surprised that you have any non-gray hairs left yeah given your career choices of focusing so much on the watch no but this i feel like this is a great example of you know a something that seems like it should be fairly straightforward and then realizing doing it at all let alone doing it well is you know has has some surprising pitfalls that you might not have thought when you you know back at the beginning when you think how hard could it be <laughs> yeah. but also I, I think this is a good example of like tackling somewhat hard to do correctly things like this is a pretty good like business model to to attempt because here's something that you know it seems easy it seems like and it seems like a lot of people want this so like there's demand for this but doing it right is a little bit beyond what most iOS programmers are willing to tackle or able to tackle. And if you make a career out of doing, you know, mostly easy enough things so you can just, so you can handle it as an indie, but occasionally tackling something that's kind of tricky like this and doing a really good job with it, 
you can build a business on that because there will be way less competition that is willing and able to go through all this hassle to get this right compared to you know you being willing just you know wanting this to exist so badly that you're willing to go through all this you know all these challenges to get there and so that actually you know as as long as the market wants whatever you're doing uh that's actually a pretty reasonable business strategy yeah and i think it's it's also i feel like it's one of these opportunities to to grow as a developer like i I really like as much as i joke about how, how sort of like crazy making it was it it I'm really glad that I know how the vision framework works now. Like I've never used that before and it's really cool. And I do think it is kind of this one of these funny things where I do think it puts a moat around my app because there are so many steps that you would have to go through in order to recreate this feature that it just makes it that much harder. Not that I think anyone else is doing this because I think in general, I have, you know, it's like with uh, complications, like there is just what I'm doing. I'm pushing the complication system way beyond, I think what it was intended for um, with WatchSmith, but it's, yeah, it, it, from a business perspective, I do think it is a good thing. And hopefully it's a good thing. And hopefully people like this feature. Like I really have enjoyed having, you know, pictures of my kids on my watch. Um, and hopefully the other people like it too. But the process of putting it there, you know, it's like turns out to be really uh, uncomfortable uh, of a journey to, 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 to make it happen, which is hopefully, yeah, it's like it's a business move. And it makes me think of a lot of the things where, you know, it's a, you think of like some of the, the, the choices you make in Overcast with your voice processing and the way that you've kind of ha- held the line on there's been several points that there was the easy way and then there was the right way um, of building the feature. And, you know, you could have decided it long ago is, oh, I'm not going to do any voice processing of things on the watch. And it's like you decided, no, if you listen in everywhere you listen in Overcast, you want it to, to sound good. And it's like as a result, that makes your life harder, but it's like it makes the app better. And I feel like that balance between like the the, the hard thing and the right thing um, in this case is definitely something that um, is, is, is not an easy choice always, but it's usually a rewarding choice. And so I can certainly recommend it nevertheless. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to talk to you in two weeks. Bye.